COVID is not terrorism, but it has brought terror. And the only way we can come back from this and get our city back open and thriving is for us to unite once again. And I'm ready to do so. That's New York's incoming mayor, Eric Adams. As of midnight on January 1st, bye-bye de Blasio. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO on Cottage Grove, and KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950 KTNF and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio Radio for Humans, FYI Nation NicoleSandler.com Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio Burden Square Radio and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com with an assist from producer Desi Doyen, but Brad and Desi are taking the final week of the year off, as most of the world appears to be doing, regrouping and recharging and getting ready to take on a new year. So, I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in a few more times as we put 2021 in the history books where it belongs. Now, on today's show, we'll bring you a COVID reality check and a glimpse into the possibility of a more generous future that takes care of those who need help the most. Cryptic? Perhaps. Here's the deal. Back in October of 2020, I got to interview Nicholas Kristof. He wrote an opinion column for the New York Times from 2001 to 2021. Oh, and he has two Pulitzers. The release of the film Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, which was a companion documentary to the book with the same title that he and his wife wrote and released the year before, signaled a turning point in Kristoff's life. Now, we didn't know it at the time, but I believe this was the prelude to Nick Kristoff leaving the New York Times and his career as a journalist to run for governor of Oregon. Now, I'm not usually a big fan of people who have never held elected office running for positions like governor, but in this case, I might make an exception. Hear him for yourself talking about subjects that all politicians regularly shy away from, most notably poverty. So my conversation with Nicholas Kristoff coming up a bit later in the hour. But we'll start today in a moment with our current crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic. In today's news, I have a story about a new study out of South Africa where the Omicron variant was first identified. The study indicates that Omicron could displace the Delta variant that swept around the globe earlier this year. 
It's showing that people who were infected with Omicron, especially those who were vaccinated, appear to develop stronger immunity to the Delta variant as well as Omicron. This is from the report. It says the results are, quote, consistent with Omicron displacing the Delta variant since it can elicit immunity, which neutralizes Delta, making reinfection with Delta less likely. So that could be really good news if, as some studies have shown, Omicron causes less severe disease. The South African scientists who wrote this report concluded, quote, if so, then the incidence of COVID-19 severe disease would be reduced and the infection may shift to become less disruptive to individuals in society. One of them saying, quote, this will help push Delta out. Now, that's encouraging, but the study only covered a small number of people and has not yet been peer-reviewed, but I'll take any good news we can get at this point, right? So on Thursday of last week, as we were learning more about Omicron, I checked in with John M. Barry. He's the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. It tells the story of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that killed as many as 100 million people worldwide. I wanted to ask him about any parallels between the way that pandemic finally ended with Omicron's emergence as the dominant variant. So, you see, it is a busy show at a time when the news is usually slow. Unfortunately, there is one news story I must report because it happens all too often and we're doing virtually nothing to stop it. At least four people are dead. We'll make it five now, following a series of shootings in the Denver area on Monday night. The fifth person who died is the suspect. Yep, the shooter killed and injured people at multiple locations, a business, a shopping area, and a hotel. Police were involved in a car chase and exchanged gunfire with the suspect. At one point, the suspect disabled a police car during the chase and even wounded an officer before he was shot and killed. At each one of these mass shootings, which we see all too often here in the United States, there's a song I feel compelled to play. It's by a singer-songwriter named Cheryl Wheeler. If it were up to me, I'd take away the guns. If it were up to me, I'd take away the guns. We'll be right back with John M. Barry for the latest on the coronavirus pandemic, now entering year three. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. It's unforgiving, this virus of doom, so please don't be...
You're listening to The Bradcast. I'm your guest host, Nicole Sandler. Joining us on the line right now is John M. Barry. He's the author of a number of books, but most notably, one that we've been talking about is The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. John, thank you so much for coming back today. You've been on the show a couple of times in the past couple of years since we've been dealing with COVID-19. And actually, a listener brought you up yesterday, a caller to the program, when we were talking about the Omicron variant. And he said he bought your book, The Great Influenza, after hearing you on the show. And he read it and he said, it sounds like with this Omicron, it's what John Barry described how the Spanish flu of 1918 ended. So I thought rather than listen to him or try to remember from my reading to, to go right to the source and ask you to back up a bit, the, the great influenza, the 1918 Spanish flu, it did eventually end. So how, how did it end? Well, first, happy holidays to everybody. <laughs> Thank you. The same uh, to you. Yes. And uh, second, the, re- the reader uh, is probably pretty accurate. The, uh, you know, whether that happens this time remains to be seen, however. You know, uh, I actually wrote an op-ed for the uh, Washington Post that ran in October uh, when I was talking about some of these things. But what happened in 1918, you had a first wave that was not particularly transmissible and interestingly, extremely mild. A variant emerged. You got a second wave that was extremely transmissible and also very, very deadly, much deadlier than anything we've seen Hmm. COVID-19. But kind of curiously, if you were sick in the first wave, you had up to 94% protection against death in the second wave. Wow. For influenza, that's extraordinary. The best influenza vaccine we've ever developed was 61% effective. Usually it's in the 40s. Wow. Okay. A third wave developed, which uh, if you were sick in either the first or second wave, you didn't have any protection whatsoever against getting sick in the third wave. Wow. You know, what happened was, you know, a variant emerged, obviously, that escaped immunity. And and the October Washington Post op-ed, I did say that the most likely future scenario would be that we would see a variant that escaped immune protection. I think probably every virologist would have agreed with that. Several I talked to did agree with that. And Omicron seems to be less um, susceptible to to the vaccines that are out now. Right. Right. The, the other part of it is that third wave, it was still much deadlier than the first wave, but it was also less deadly than the second wave. Okay. Uh, how much of that was the virus itself mutating and how much of it was that people's immune systems uh, had some cross protection because they'd already just gone through an influenza outbreak? It's not entirely clear. And that third wave came in the in March 1919, lasted a couple of months. In the fall of 1920, influenza was pretty bad, but nothing like uh, the second or third waves. You know, some some people consider it a fourth wave of the pandemic. Personally, I don't. I think there were three, but it's only a question of semantics. Okay. However, by 1921, the virus had tamed itself. Uh, and we were back to normal seasonal influenza. Now, one of the things about the 1918 virus that made it deadly was it was able not only to bind to cells in the upper respiratory tract, which made it very transmissible, but it could also bind to cells deep in the lung, 
which made it very dangerous. You know, uh, SARS-CoV-2 can do both. Ordinary influenza viruses very rarely bind to cells mm-hmm. deep in the lung. Uh, they can kill you uh, for all sorts of reasons, but you rarely see the cytokine storms and so forth that, that were caused both by the 1918 virus and by by SARS, by SARS-1, by, by MERS, by uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, COVID. Which is COVID, right. Uh, the interesting thing about, a lot of interesting things, Omicron, according to some studies, has less ability to bind to cells deep in the lung. Yes. Than I, either Delta or predecessor variants of, of SARS-CoV-2. Right. And that's a big distinction, isn't it? Because I, get, I bring it all I bring it all to a personal level because that's how I understand things. But I'm a lung cancer survivor missing most of my left lung. And my uh, oncologist had warned me that I'm no more susceptible to catching it than anyone else. But if I got pneumonia from covid, I'd be in deep trouble. Um, this makes it a lot less dangerous for someone like me. Right. That's that's correct. And, you know, whether or not the next variant is going to continue in that direction or whether it's going to move back to something else, we have no way of knowing. Uh, There is a theory that the 1889 influenza pandemic, which was it was nothing like 1918, but it was considerably more severe than what we saw in 1957, 1968 or 2009. Um, But there's a theory that that was actually caused by a coronavirus which is called OC43 and which today causes the common cold. Right. You know, the evidence for that theory is interesting, but it's not compelling. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not an advocate of it. I'm agnostic about whether it's accurate or whether it's true or not, but it's very interesting. You know, the the hope would be, of course, that COVID-19 goes away, the common cold. If it does that, we really have no idea you know, when that would happen. Right. You know. But so, so John Barry, so in, in 1918, actually 1920 now, uh, it just, it kept um, morphing basically. And, and finally just petered out. Is that, is that what happened? Like a less. Yeah, well, it didn't peter out, but it did become less deadly uh, and like ordinary seasonal influenza, which is, is not the common cold. Right. You know, it is a, a lot more serious than the common cold. You know, before this pandemic, it could kill as many as 60,000 Americans a year, including a lot of kids. Sure. Well, something I read about Omicron is that they identified a string of the, the DNA code, I guess, that is the same as the common cold. And maybe that is the reason that this is so communicable, that it's so much more contagious. I'm not I don't know. I, I'm certainly not I have RNA, no medical. not DNA, not to not to be overly oh, sorry. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> RNA, duh. Like in the vex, like in the mRNA. Um, but but it had the code that is identical to the common cold. It, so it's it's related. I mean, the cold is a coronavirus, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, a lot of viruses cause the common cold, but but several coronaviruses are are, are among backwards. them. I got gotcha. you. Uh, um, so when you heard about the, the what they're saying about uh, Omicron is is a couple of things. One is that they're finding. Uh, I think three studies were released yesterday or thereabouts, saying that it doesn't appear to be as deadly. 
It's not as uh, people don't get as sick on it. And then the, the latest thing we're hearing is in South Africa, in less than a month, they say the wave has gone from a near vertical rise to a near vertical fall, that it's it's going away as quickly as it came on and that we're about a month behind them. So this this surge that we're having might be short-lived? Yeah, actually just a few minutes ago, I was looking at a very detailed 40-slide uh, presentation on from South Africa, exactly what's going on there. Uh, that's interesting and very hopeful. You know, like everybody else, I'm saying it's a little bit too early to uh, jump to any conclusions. There was also a study that, uh, a British study that said there is no indication that Omicron is less severe. Oh, uh, you know, again, it's it's not clear whether the you know reported relative mildness in South Africa is because you know the population has already been infected and therefore has immunity or whether it's inherent within the virus itself. Hmm. Uh, and because it's all new. If you're unvaccinated and never been infected, it may be every bit as severe. If you're vaccinated, even if you haven't been boosted, in terms of severe disease, you, you certainly have some protection. It's not clear how much. If you're boosted, you're in much, much better shape. That is that is crystal clear. Uh, so it's hard to parse out, you know, what is the virus itself? What is people's immune systems giving them some protection? It's also a little bit early, you know, because it's a slow-moving disease. It takes several weeks for, in many cases, one after you're infected before you get seriously ill, mm-hmm. if you are going to get seriously ill. So we're a little early in the process, but things do look pretty optimistic. Uh, So, uh, you know, you mentioned an op-ed you wrote in the Washington Post uh, a few months back. I'm looking at one that you wrote uh, that was published on January 31st, 2020, which was before most of us even knew that this was a thing. And the, the headline reads, opinion, can this virus be contained? Probably not. So you were saying that before title for that was actually <laughs> this virus cannot be contained. Okay, well, okay, there you go. Well, actually, I, I pulled some of my punches there. I didn't want to get too far out. But but uh, you 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 called it before the rest of us even realized that this was going to happen. I mean, I remember um, hearing the name Dr. Nancy Messonnier stays in my head because she was the first one to sound the warning bell in the middle of, or the end of February. I think it was February 25th. So this was a full month earlier. You were sounding the alarm. Um, So if you had to guess, you had to make an educated guess on when we're going to get past this. I mean, a lot of us didn't think we'd still be, you know, hunkering down Christmas time in 2021 as we're bringing in 2022. Um, do you think this is going to be with us for the foreseeable future in some form? Well, it's certainly going to be with us in terms of infecting people. You know, the question is how serious it's going to be. You know, uh, you know, I was not alone in January. I, I remember I wrote that op-ed on January 24th. Usually it takes me days to even to write an op-ed, but I did that in a couple of hours. It was seemed so obvious. Uh, and, you know, I know a lot of people in the public health community and pandemic experts, 
uh, everybody I talked to in January was saying, yeah, this thing's coming. I, I don't really understand why. I mean, well, let's not get into that part of it. Okay. You know, almost two years ago, uh, where we are now, you know, it, it's hard to make predictions. I thought that the immunity that people would have either from vaccination or from infection, because right now we got to be over 80% of the population and probably well over 80% of the population is either, you know, the adults over 70% of the adult populations vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got what we know of over 50 million infections and it's probably close to double that in reality. So, so a huge portion of the population should have some immune protection. And I think that you need to begin to shift from the case count to the death count mm. in terms of paying attention to the disease. We're still well over a thousand case deaths a day, which oh, no. is too much, <laughs> very high. And I would have expected by now that it would have be significantly less than that. Well, do you think it isn't? Do you think they, do you think that it's still so high, such a high infection rate because so many people are refusing to take the vaccine? Well, clearly that's a major factor. Clearly that's the major factor. But a lot of those people who are refusing the vaccine have been infected and therefore have uh, some protection anyway. It, you know, we don't have any numbers and I haven't really seen any good estimates on what percentage of the unvaccinated have gotten infected. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know that. So I am, you know, still un unhappily surprised by the number of deaths. I thought given the amount of immune protection in the population, the daily death count would be significantly lower than it is now. And it um, seemed like we were headed there until Omicron arrived on the scene. I mean, people well, were... Omicron still hasn't oh, killed me. I mean, oh, right. The That's right. we are seeing now are still from Delta. Delta. Wow. You know, the, you know, Omicron hasn't been here long enough to kill large numbers of people. I see. I see. It's just uh, more and more people are, are testing positive, but they're not dying right. in greater that, numbers which run. and yeah. uh, and that death count may climb in in the next week 10 days uh there is a lack uh, between you know in fact you know testing positive and serious disease okay so my my non-professional um feeling that we're, because we're hearing omicron is spiking fast and then going away quickly and it seems to be less severe um uh, certainly lung damage uh less severe illness by some reports not all um that i was hoping that but but the way it's taken over like in a in a matter of days it became the dominant variant That's here That's that is amazing that is amazing. That astounds everybody. And so can that wipe out the other variants and take control? Like, a, this is what I'm getting at. Can a less serious strain of the virus wipe out the more serious ones and take over and, and sort of that way it'll eventually? That, that, that's a very good question. And uh, one that I've, you know, wondered about and asked other people about. What has happened in influenza when you had a pandemic, didn't it? 
1918, the virus, there had been seasonal influenza circulating before that. And 1918 wiped it out. And the only thing you saw after 1918 was H1N1, which was the 1918 virus. You had a pandemic in 1950s and it continued to circulate as seasonal influenza for 40 years. In 1957, you had a new influenza virus and a pandemic. It was called H2N2. It wiped out H1N1. Mm. H1N1 essentially disappeared from the population. 1968, you had another virus, H3N2. That wiped out H2N2. Nobody, you don't see any H2N2. It hasn't circulated since 1968. H1N1 was reintroduced in 1976, plus the pandemic in 2009 was H1N1. Right. That was the but swine the flu, right? Was, was that the swine flu for that? Swine, right. Right. Okay. Interestingly, that pandemic in 2009, the only virus you saw was H1N1, the 2009 virus. But since then, H3N2 and the 2009 virus have co-circulated. They sort of go back and forth. So the question is, Omicron is so different from Delta that you don't have, you have very little protection against infection if you were infected by Delta. I see. Okay. So does that mean Delta is going to come back in a year right, or, or less after Omicron, after a wave of Omicron goes through? Uh, will they continue to co-circulate? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, and if they do co-circulate or if another variant emerges, I mean, the viruses are going to continue to change. It's not stopping. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, what kind of virus will it be? Uh, you know, will it be able to bind to cells deep in the lung and cause death, severe disease? Uh, you know, we hope not, but we don't know. So the, the thing is, we don't know. And that's the thing. That's what it is, is a novel virus. So it's all new. You're learning. The scientists are learning as we go along. Um, yeah, so- and there are there are people who who think there's uh, a link a negative correlation between transmissibility and severity, but that's not true. There is no law of nature that says the more transmissible a virus is, the less lethal it is. That's just not accurate. Uh, We hope that that's the case, but that's in, you know, there's, it's just not a law of nature. It it doesn't have to happen. You could get a lethal virus that is very transmissible, such as, the second wave of 1918. Now, are you encouraged by the the FDA today approved the second? They did one yesterday, the Pfizer one today, a Merck um, antiviral drug to take once you've been infected, but before you get really sick and need a hospitalization. Are you encouraged by that? Do you think that'll help us? I think obviously the Pfizer drug has much, much better results. That's what they say. Yeah. And it's also less likely that the virus can develop immunity and the uh, Merck drug does in fact, you know, uh, could infect mutations in your own cells. Uh, So I think the Pfizer drug's a lot better for a lot of reasons. Right. And the problem with the Pfizer drug is they say it takes six months to make the drug. So it's, it's going to be a delay until it's readily available. 
right. The, the, you know, I do the Merck drug better than nothing. Right. Uh, but in a real marketplace where with equal supplies uh, or with adequate supplies, you know, it couldn't compete. Uh, But it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. And and final question for you. To the people who won't get vaccinated, let me, I'll give you one story. An old, very dear friend of mine who lives in Los Angeles, I'm now in Florida, so I don't see her often, which I guess is good right now, who informed me that she and her boyfriend both got COVID and they were in a hotel riding it out. Uh, They got the monoclonal antibodies. They got everything, but they were really sick. And I said, but you were vaccinated, right? She said, no. She said, I don't trust big pharma. Now, um, I had a few choice words well, for her. Got but- the monoclonal antibodies. Right, what, that's what I what said. Do they think big pharma, <laughs> you know, they think the guy down the druggist down the street put that together. That's what I said. So I said, you don't trust the vaccine, but you trust it. She goes, well, I know how that works. Well, obviously she doesn't because the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer, this is not something that they just developed overnight. This mRNA technology has been in the works for a long time, right? Yeah. And, you know, Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, well, AstraZeneca is not approved in the United States. Right. Uh, Novavax has just been approved in the European Union. Well, my guess is it'll be approved in the United States. Uh, a very good vaccine. Um, full disclosure, I own stock in it. I'm, you know, not a lot okay. of stock, but gotcha. Stock. But the point, the point tax. that I made to her is maybe it is put big pharma out of the question. The top scientists, not just here, but around the world are all saying, take the vaccine. It's effective. It works. It's for the most part, not harmful. I mean, there's always going to be some side effects. There's always going to be someone who has a reaction to a vaccine, but the, the statistics are uh, statistically insignificant, right? Or am yeah. I wrong? I mean, you compare it to getting sick. Right. Even Omicron, you know, even if Omicron is milder, which is not really been fully established right. yet. We still don't know for sure. In terms of somebody who's not been infected and not been vaccinated, it's not at all clear that Omicron will be milder mm. in that uh, but yeah. So are you compared to the illness? The illness is a lot more dangerous than the tiny number of people who have been affected in a serious way by uh, vaccines. Gotcha. Uh, John M. Barry, thank you so much. Thanks for your jumping on with me today so quickly uh, and for the great information. We are all flying kind of blind here. So we're, you know, I like to go to the experts and ask the question directly. And I really appreciate you being available to us. Okay, thanks. I'm not sure if I'm an expert, but. (laughs) Well, you know more than the average person does. (laughs) Thank you so much and and happy holidays to you. (laughs) Thank you. John M. Barry, author of The Great Influenza. Yeah, just one of the challenges facing us as we wait for 2021 to turn over to 2022. One other issue facing us today that politicians really don't like to talk about is poverty. So we will next with Nicholas Kristof, who at the time I spoke to him was a New York Times columnist, and now he's running for governor of Oregon. I'm Nicole Sandler of Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com, your guest host today on the broadcast. 
Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show. So this interview actually originally aired in October of 2020. But there's a reason I'm playing it for you today, because it is topical again. The guest at the time was a columnist for The New York Times. Now he's running for governor of Oregon. Keep that in mind as you listen to Nicholas Kristoff on the broadcast. I'm very excited about our guest today. Nicholas Kristoff is a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the New York Times. The occasion of his appearance is the release of the film Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. Um, it's uh, It goes along with the companion book that came out last year. The film has its national TV debut this coming Monday, 7 p.m. Eastern on the World Channel. As the companion to the book of the same name released earlier this year, a project he was joined on by his wife, Cheryl Wudun, a co-collaborator on a number of projects. They share a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of China. And, um, and Nick Kristoff, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be with you. Um, so, you know, I watched the film with just an aching in my heart. You spotlight the heart of what's wrong in this country. And I'm watching the debate last night, and I can't help but thinking that you did the research for this project before the pandemic hit. So as bad as things were, and we'll explain, you know, what what is bad, they're only going to keep getting worse. Donald Trump brags of, we had the best economy, I built the best economy in the history of the country, which wasn't true. And we'll get into that too, because the book is about hope or the lack of hope. The subtitle is Americans Reaching for Hope. Tell us the premise of it. What made you yeah. do this research? Yeah, you know, I, the issues that we talk about that, you know, that got worse, one of the issues we write about is the toll of unemployment. That's obviously gotten worse. We talk about the toll of social isolation and uh, addiction. That's obviously gotten worse. The toll of a lack of universal health care. And, and obviously, uh, you know, that is uh, worse above all during a pandemic. But essentially what Tightrope was about was the disintegration of the working class in America. Um, and we told it through my hometown, uh, Yamhill, Oregon, a small farm town. And in particular, we told it through the people on my old school bus who I'm still close to. But a quarter of them are 
uh, now dead from drugs, alcohol, and suicide, what are called deaths of despair. And if you want to understand what has gone wrong in an awful lot of America, you could look at my classmates on that school bus and their families. The school bus number six. And so you've kept in touch with these people because your mother still lives in the house you grew up in, right? Or did? That's right. She's still on the family farm. I go back all the time. Um, and, you know, when you're, <laughs> when they're kids you grow up with, you flirted with, you went out with, you competed with on the track, there's, you know, nothing can, can, can create distance between you. And then you realized, and now all these years have passed, we're about the same age. So um, all these years have passed, and you realize that a good number of the kids you grew up with are not only not doing well, they're not doing at all. A lot of them are no, no longer with us. And this is a byproduct of the poverty, the drug problems, the, the homelessness, the, the, the lack of hope in America. Yeah, the the family that got on the bus right after I did each morning, it was the, the five nap kids. Farlin was my grade, his younger brother, Zeelan, uh, younger brother, Keelan, younger brother, Nathan, and younger sister, Regina, all five happy kids. Their dad was a pipe layer who had turned a, you know, a good union blue-collar job into a middle-class life. And Farlin lost his job and... Uh, died of liver failure from drug and alcohol use. Um, Nathan blew himself up cooking meth. Zeeland died in a house fire when he was passed out drunk. Rogina died of hepatitis oh, from God. injecting drugs. And Keelan died just in March um, from uh, from a heroin overdose after you know after jobs had been after he'd lost his job in because of COVID. Wow. Um, and it's just a one kid after another, and that has just happened, I mean, not maybe to that degree, but that kind of tragedy has unfolded in so much of American communities, white and black and brown, all across the country. And, you know, we have the tools to address that. We have the resources. What we've lacked is the political will. You use your hometown of Yamhill, Oregon, as the jumping off point, but then you took your research on the road and realized this is just one of thousands of small towns across America where the same issues are plaguing people. Now let's back up a little bit, Nick, because again, when you wrote the book, the original book, and did the research and I went and shot footage and everything, it was before COVID had hit. It was when Donald Trump was bragging that he built the best economy in the history of the world. He didn't, though. And although the stock market may have been riding high, most Americans, especially the Americans you're talking about in this book and in this film, don't have money in the stock market. I don't have money in the stock market. I'm an average American who's been struggling actually since the 2008 crash. This has only made it worse. Talk about that disconnect where the president of the United States boasts about the greatest economy the world has ever seen, but most of America is struggling and dying like this. There's a huge disconnect and in many ways, President Trump is emblematic of it. But frankly, it has also affected, you know, Democrats as well as Republicans. A lot of elites, educated elites in this country um, have done very well. And if you were highly educated in America, the odds are that you've done pretty well. But meanwhile, if you only have a high school degree or even worse, if you haven't graduated from high school, as one in seven Americans still do, you're cooked. You know, the average um, non-supervisory wage in 2018 was lower 
adjusted for inflation than it had been in 1973. Wow. Just think about that. Uh-huh. Lower in, in 2018 than in 1973. Um, the 1968 federal minimum wage, if it had kept pace with inflation and productivity, would now be more than $22 an hour. Yeah. Obviously, it's, you know, instead it's $7.25. That's right. And so, you know, so many Americans have floundered as they've struggled in the job market. And, you know, some of them, uh, we have this narrative about how it's all about personal responsibility and bad choices. And, you know, there's no doubt that there are plenty of kids I grew up with who made some bad choices and in some cases showed a lack of personal responsibility. But they made those bad choices out of a context. And, you know, a baby in three counties in the U.S. has a shorter life expectancy than a newborn baby in Cambodia or Bangladesh. And that's not because those babies are making bad choices, because we as a society are making bad choices. With COVID right now, we are on the verge of an even bigger disaster. All the things that you talk about in this film are still there. Those That's reality in small town America everywhere. But things are about to get a whole lot worse. Right. Because I live in Florida, for example, my governor, who I've nicknamed Ron Death Sentence, just lifted the moratorium on evictions. So all these people who are now unemployed can't pay their rent, can't pay their mortgage. Now they're maybe a couple of months behind. He lifted the moratorium on evictions right before the first of October. So we're going to see. I mean, homelessness explode across the country. This is the other thing that I was thinking about is that um, during the campaign, we heard so much talk about the middle class, middle class jobs, middle class, middle class. We rarely hear our candidates talk about those people living in poverty. And I believe that's the largest, fastest growing segment of our society. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation about the middle class, mm-hmm. almost not about the working class. And, you know, there was a really healthy, important discussion in the Democratic primaries about improving college access and, and dealing with college debt. Unless we come to grips with the fact that one in seven American kids still doesn't graduate from high school, then we can't grapple with this kind of inequity in the U.S. You know, in Native American schools, the graduation rate for Bureau of Indian Education mm-hmm. schools is only 53%. Almost half of Native kids in these government schools don't even graduate from high school. So we've got to have that conversation. Um, and, you know, and social, we, I think we also don't understand the toll of loneliness and no. social isolation in much of the country. And There's that's exploding now, too. Absolutely. You know, a quarter of young people said in a a survey uh, in June that that they were considering suicide. Um, 13 percent of Americans said that they had engaged in substance abuse or um, had increased their substance abuse because of COVID-19. And because kids have not been going to school so much, we often don't have the surveillance network mechanism to detect things like abuse at home. But that is surely going on on a massive scale right now. Well, and apparently domestic abuse instances are up as well because people are stuck at home. I'm very lucky. I've got a wonderful husband. We're both older. At 61 and 68, we're in that high-risk category. And, you know, I'm a lung cancer survivor, so lungs get hit. So I don't leave the house. Luckily, I've got a loving husband. But my daughter turned 21 during our isolation time. 
here at home. She left her job. I finally convinced her to take a job she was offered because I didn't think it was healthy for her to be stuck in the house with her parents for months on end. And who knows when this is going to end. Now, she's being careful and wearing a mask, but, you know, she's around people every day. It's a risk. But there are all those people who are in my position but who don't have the loving husband, who are stuck at home, who are afraid to go out, who shouldn't go out, and loneliness sets in. In addition to the poverty and the hunger and the other issues, I, this is going to just explode. And we have a president in the White House who's in denial about all of it. That's right. And, you know, we've we've often discussed COVID in the context of the immediate health effects. I don't think we've had enough discussion about the the job effects. And one of the reasons we wrote Tightrope and did the documentary was really because of our sense that too often in the country we thought of jobs as an income stream. And there is now so much evidence that they are beyond that a source of identity, a source of purpose, of mm-hmm. meaning. Right. Uh, Social life too, in many cases. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they knit people into a community then 11 million people lost their jobs since since February, 11 million. And we can't even come up with a bipartisan rescue package to support them uh, since the end of July. European countries did a very good job mm-hmm. in trying to in basically paying employers to keep people on the job. And that meant that unemployment didn't go sky high and people didn't self-medicate. And, of course, in, in countries outside the U.S., they when they even if they do lose their job, they don't lose their health insurance as they do in the U.S. Right. In the U.S., you know, a million people because they lost their jobs also lost their health insurance uh, in the middle of a plague. And the Democrats floated the idea of opening, having an open enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act for all those people who lost their health coverage with their jobs. And the Trump administration said no. And not only that, they're still going to court on November 11th to the Supreme Court to overturn what's left of it to take it away from the rest of us. I'm wondering, Nick Kristoff is with us. When you went back to Yamhill... And you met with some of your old friends and kids that you rode the school bus with. There was one man, I recall you sitting in his home. He was a very heavy set man who took care of your mother, expressed great love for her, for your family. And I realized uh, this man has health problems. How much of the poverty do you think comes from health issues, from lack of insurance or lack of a job to pay for insurance and, and mounting medical bills? You know, these issues are all integrated. So you're talking mm-hmm. about my friend uh, Clayton. Yeah. He was one of five kids, and four of them are now gone, including oh. Clayton. Clayton died just as we were finishing the documentary. And, you know, Clayton, it's all integrated. So Clayton was kicked out of school in the ninth grade. Um, he then could not get the kind of good union job that his dad had had as a, a cement finisher. Uh, Clayton self-medicated. Yeah. He was, he's a very bright guy, but he self-medicated with drugs and alcohol um, out of frustration, I think. He couldn't, uh, he, he wasn't able to form a stable family the way his, his dad had. And I think that that gnawed at him and that aided him. And he, he was indeed very overweight. He was 400 pounds. Oh, my. But that was in turn a reflection of his job difficulties, of his poverty, of his lack of educational attainment. And we as a society 
spent money uh, prosecuting and incarcerating Clayton, but not educating him and not providing job retraining or, or, or drug treatment. And Clayton is now gone, but he's got five grandkids oh, wow. that have all been removed by the state, <gasps> all removed by the state. And, you know, I just see these problems transmitted from generation to generation uh, in ways that I just find heartbreaking. When you go back there, and again, your mother still lives there, so obviously you you go there. Is there ever any resentment? I mean, look, you went off to the big city. You're a New York Times columnist, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Does anybody show a, a, a problem with your success that they're not having, that they're stuck there and unable to break out of this rut? I don't think so. If they do, it's behind my back. I okay, think they're, they're genuinely proud of of the things I've done. I was a little apprehensive after the book came out and now with the documentary coming out, whether mm. people back home will um, think that I'm, you know, airing dirty laundry. Um, it's, you know, it, I'm, we're pretty blunt about some of the problems. Um, but my sense is that people there, you know, they know better than anybody the local problems. Right. And, they 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 tend to be conservative. They tend to be Trump voters. They Ooh. don't agree with my interpretation of it, but they don't want your sympathy. They don't even want your agreement. What they want is respect. What they want to be is listened to. And I think that they're going to think that the documentary listens to them and treats them with respect. Good, because it's shining a spotlight on an urgent issue and one that, as we said, doesn't get talked about enough. But what you said really bothers me. I mean, I get they're conservative, but Trump supporters, I, I see so many people living in poverty voting against their own best interests. This man does not care about them, and I don't know what it would take to make them see it. I mean, you saw Joe Biden in the debate last night saying, look, nobody should go to jail because of a drug conviction. They should go to treatment. We need to fix this. Donald Trump says, uh, you know, Central Park Five, even though they weren't guilty, we should put him to death anyway. Uh, you know, the, the, again, I keep going back to disconnect. Then there's the state. This is the richest nation on the planet. You've got all these oil rich countries. We have more money than they do. Yet one in five children in the United States goes to bed hungry at night. There's something really wrong yeah. there. You know, people often ask me how it is that my old classmates so often voted for Trump. Um, how is it that people who are really struggling can can vote for a, a New York zillionaire who exploits them? Um, I think that part of it is that they were extraordinarily desperate and they saw their lives and community disintegrating. And then, you know, along comes this guy who promises that he's going to bring back manufacturing jobs. He points to scapegoats of immigrants and says he can fix the problem. One of the people we, uh, we wrote about was my old uh, seventh grade crush, Mary Mayer. And um, she spent seven years homeless. Oh. Uh, four members of her family committed suicide. At one point, she put a gun to her head. And I'd asked her once, did you ever think that politics might help address these problems? And she said, no, not until 2016. And then she voted for the first time in her life for Donald Trump. Oh my God. And I was just like, Mary. Oh um, but I'd say that I think there's often a misperception that the white working class is uh, simply conservative. And it's more complicated than that. They tend to be socially conservative, but economically more liberal. And historically, they've gone into the, into the polling booth and 
you know, if the issues has been guns or gay rights or abortion, then they're more likely to vote for Republicans. But if the issue is raising the minimum wage, if it's expanding access to health care, uh, providing child care, then they're much more likely to, to vote Democratic. Mm-hmm. And it may well be that in this economic crisis that has so made clear our national failings, you know, it may be that this is a time when more of them will vote uh, Democratic. Do you know if the message is getting through to them, the fact that a handful of billionaires have made out like bandits through this pandemic when the rest of us are going broke and blowing through our savings, if we were lucky enough to have any, that the billionaires have increased their wealth exponentially because, you know, they had essential businesses, I guess. They're the ones capitalizing on this. Jeff Bezos is, I don't know how many billions of dollars richer, and he still doesn't pay taxes. Do they yeah, get that? They know, don't get it. it, it it's, it's striking to me how my friends... You know, so many of them um, live in a conservative ecosystem, uh, mostly on Facebook, in which their news consumption is completely different from mine. And their understanding of the world is completely different from mine. And I think that that uh, and Fox News has um, tended to, you know, reinforce their pre-existing ideas and beliefs and also a sense that uh, they are looked down upon and scorned by Democratic elites on the coasts, that Democrats want to violate their freedom of religion, uh, <laughs> want to take their guns away, et cetera, et cetera, and play, play upon these kind of cultural fears in ways that, unfortunately, I think are often effective. Yes. And, you you know, you mentioned Fox and we've got to go there. I mean, I have a radio sounder, Fox News, we make it up. They are the original source for fake news. Uh, it says that, too. They were doing fake news long before Donald Trump tried to do the opposite world thing on us and call real news fake news and project his nonsense onto everybody else. And because Fox is so pervasive, again, um, people uh, are brainwashed by it. And I really think that's what happened to Donald Trump, too. He used to be a Manhattan quasi-liberal. I mean, who knows what he was? He was always kind of ignorant of what's going on in the real world. But he was pro-choice. He donated money to Democrats. And all of a sudden, he's this crazy right-wing conspiracy theorist. And I believe it's because he's addicted to Fox. I'd, I'd push back on that. Would I don't you? think he really believes any of this uh-huh. stuff. I think he's just an opportunist. Okay. I, I think he just says yeah. things if he thinks there's an advantage and he thought that he could gain the Republican nomination. And to do that, he had to be pro, uh, pro-life pro rather than pro-choice. Uh, I, I don't think he... Has really any convictions at all? Believes any at all? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm I'm with you there. I am with you there. I mean, I've heard we've heard from some of these books that have come out of the things he says about these people, his constituents. Right. Ugh, he's glad about the COVID, so he doesn't have to shake the hands of those gross people. Um, about the evangelicals who laid their hands on him in the office. Apparently, he had some choice words to say about them as well. And yet they keep drinking the Kool-Aid. That's what I don't understand. I, I don't know when, when common sense takes over, just like the disconnect between the United States being the richest nation in the history of the world. And there's so much poverty here. And maybe yeah. it's uh, Nicholas Kristoff, you and your wife. I'm so glad you did this book in this film, Tightrope, because... It is shining a spotlight on the thing that, you know, you only talk about quietly. You don't say it out loud. Well, we need to say it out loud. 
You know, I think that's right. And I think there's this misperception in the U.S. that this kind of poverty and job losses is all a result of globalization and technology and, and, and deindustrialization. And now, that's these are genuine it. issues. Yeah. But fundamentally, the same global patterns happen to Germany. They happen to Canada. And we don't see that kind of child poverty in those countries. We have kids who are poor, who are hungry. In this country, kids are 55% more likely to die in the U.S. than in Europe by age 19 because of choices that we as a country made. And it's not because of lack of personal responsibility of those kids. It's because of lack of collective responsibility on our part. And that's why we wrote Tightrope. Tightrope. Tightrope, Americans reaching for hope. Um, Is there a hopeful note in there that you can share with us? Because I'm feeling pretty hopeless right now. Oh, let me, let me, you know, <laughs> let me try to reassure you. I, Please. I actually am a little more hopeful now than I was a few months ago because I think that COVID-19 has been such a catastrophe that it has reminded people about the need for universal health care, yeah. for universal paid sick leave, for really fundamental changes. Only about 30% of Americans say that the country is on the right path now. And You know, think about the 1932 election. It was precisely because the Great Depression had been so disastrous and because Herbert Hoover's administration had been so calamitous and incapable of addressing it that FDR was able to um, win a mandate to flip the Senate in the 1932 election and then uh, launch the New Deal. And, you know, FDR was not a revolutionary any more than Joe Biden was, but Mm -hmm. they saw that and they had popular desire to really begin to address fundamental problems. I ho- I think that we now actually have a, more of a chance to address those fundamental issues uh, than we might have a year ago if there had been no pandemic. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And Joe Biden has also hinted at that he could have an FDR type of presidency. The skeptic yeah. in me says, eh, but the, the hopefulness in me says, please. Is it in there? But, you know, then I hear him say, I'm not for uh, Medicare for all and I'm not for ending fracking. And, I, and it's like, OK, I bite yeah, my but, tongue. You know, look at the look at the polling and a some kind of a public option to expand health coverage mm-hmm. has majority public support in America at this point. You, some kind of a universal child care uh, slash National pre-K has a majority support in America. Bandwidth for all has majority support. Mm-hmm. Uh, a wealth tax has majority support. So, you know, the public is actually rather more progressive than, you know, than the consensus among our leaders. And I'm hoping that there is so much desperation and difficulty that that may indeed drive our country belatedly to try to fix some of these long-term problems in America. I certainly hope so. Former New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof and current candidate for governor of Oregon. That interview was recorded on October 22nd, 2020. And it was almost exactly a year later, on October 28th, 2021 that Nick Kristoff said goodbye to his New York Times readers and hello to the Oregon voters. I thought this would give an interesting perspective on him. And of course, now with hindsight, we can look back on that conversation and see what the Biden administration has accomplished and what it hasn't. We've still got a lot of work ahead and then some. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler inviting you to check out my show. I'm based at NicoleSandler.com. Come over anytime, look around, stay a while. 
And I'll be back for one more episode of the broadcast in 2021. So I'll see you then. As Brad always says, good luck, world.